All right, and welcome to a very special episode of The Greatest Podcast in History. I'd like to thank the Struts for their theme song intro there. Of course, we all know that's the greatest song in the world. Uh, These times are a-changin'. I recommend you check that out on all your streaming platforms. Um, Today, we are talking about plutonium, sort of the nuclear bomb, nuclear development in U.S. history, and how that has sort of affected... Um, just the many spheres of public life in America. Uh, sort of the main book that we'll be looking at today and going off of is Plutopia by Kate Brown, uh, subtitled Nuclear Families, Atomic Cities, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters. Uh, this was sort of, I guess not even sort of, uh, this was published in 2013, Oxford University Press uh, publication. Uh, Kate Brown herself is a professor of history, uh, this is from sort of the back matter of the book, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Um, this is her third book, I believe, second, third book, correct? Uh, she's a 2009 Guggenheim Fellow, um, so clearly a incredibly accomplished author uh, and very, very uh, incisive and uh, able to look at stuff from all different angles. Um, I guess then plutonium... Uh, sort of in the nuclear bomb has long sort of been in the minds of the United States um, since its development, since, you know, World War II, the Manhattan Project, um, sort of been popularized in various and satirized also as well in various movies such as uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying uh, and Learned to Love the Bomb, one of, in my opinion, at least Stanley Kubrick's finest movies. And then, you know, from other things as well, uh, including even the TV show White Collar, had sort of an episode where the uh, the main uh, heist was around the creation of a pre-nuclear uh, wine bottle, which can you can't be faked anymore because um, sort of since the first explosion of nuclear matter, uh, everything in the world, uh, and this is actually sort of a true fact, uh, is contaminated by these sort of uh, particles that these man-made particles that did not exist prior to the uh, invention and explosion of nuclear materials. Uh, so there are some things that are impossible to fake if they undergo these sort of uh, tests, which, you know, the white collar boys had to had to figure out how to get around that. Um, but, I mean, clearly from this uh, and sort of various other um, representations of nuclear war and uh, plutonium development, um, you know, the great series of sort of 80s and 70s, like, Russian paranoia films about the development of the bomb and who's going to, and you know, all these spy novels all sort of revolve around stealing uh, various Russian or American uh, scientific material mostly related to the bomb. Uh, It's sort of a huge thing in the world consciousness, almost specifically in the United States. Uh, Just the Cold War was sort of, it's it's almost impossible to understate how important it was in the American consciousness. Um partly because sort of the threat of, I guess, nuclear annihilation um, rested on the heads of everyone living during those times. Uh, You know, you hear stories and see pictures of the atomic bomb drills that students had to do, uh, somewhat reminiscent of our own current day sort of mass shooting drills that happen, uh, where students hiding underneath their desks uh, in, you know, an effort to, I guess, prevent um, or minimize damage by nuclear explosions. Uh, in my own, growing up in Missoula, Montana, um, there still is sort of every, I believe, first Tuesday of the month, they have uh, an air raid siren goes off, a relic of the Cold War era. 
Um, they still have not stopped doing that. So sort of the signs are around us everywhere, um, just in our own lives, and then popular culture as well. As I mentioned, you know, movies, TVs, the popular uh, video game Fallout, sort of based around rebuilding America post uh, sort of 1950s nuclear annihilation. So these things are uh, sort of very much in the air, um, but I think understudied, um, especially because it is sort of in, I guess, the scope of historian, the historian's time scope, uh, sort of new, you know, anything post-World War II is considered modern day, basically, by your various historians. So Plutopia is, uh, at least as far as I know, one of sort of the first works to come out uh, and sort of deal directly with the implications and fallout of the development of the uh, American and Soviet nuclear programs, specifically looking at sort of how they developed uh, and manufactured plutonium. Um, this is sort of, it's a very relevant uh, issue, I guess, um, considering our sort of current... Uh, environmental crisis going on um, and the need to develop energy uh, in ways that uh, can be both renewed and then is not horrible for the environment. Um, and nuclear energy is one of those options that is often looked at um, for the development of that. Uh, and Plutopia sort of goes into the possibilities of that in some ways, um, not directly, but marginally, I guess. Sort of the main thrust of this uh, argument, of Kate Brown's argument, is that the U.S., uh, and Russia both um, almost simultaneously because of sort of a need the considered need of the military and sort of the government um, ignored all sort of like health risks uh, and possible um, environmental risks to this development of plutonium um, in an effort just to make more and more and more as fast as possible uh, and this sort of like Ignoring of the uh, potential environmental and health catastrophes um, led to a couple, th led to many, many things. Um, honestly, both good and bad. Um, perhaps I think, in my opinion, the bad far outweighs the good um, that came from these things. But you know, this sort of adding shading and subtlety to the oftentimes black and white story of. Um, the development of the nuclear program in the U.S. and Russia as well, I think, is an important contribution that Kate Brown makes. Um, basically, um, and just sort of the, without, you know, retelling this whole 400-some uh, page book, um, people on the, both on the ground and then scientists as well working on the development of these plutonium materials knew that there could potentially be horrible, horrible, horrible environmental risks and health risks um, to both the surrounding areas of the plants and then also the people working at them. However, these were uh, these potential sort of mishaps and complaints were completely ignored by the upper brass, um, both of the U.S. military, but then also of sort of the corporations who were funding, um, at least in the U.S.'s case, uh, funding a lot of this research and building. Uh, they were completely ignored um, because sort of the there was a need felt to just make as much as possible as quickly as possible and sort of you know damn the consequences we'll figure it out in the future uh unfortunately now for us the future is here as kate brown has shown in both russia and in the u.s um where these plants were sort of the effects are still there um especially with regards to people who worked at the plant and lived in the surrounding areas uh the some of the stories that she shows in russia are particularly brutal uh just you know rivers uh, lakes that are completely uh, uninhabitable by unless you're someone who has lived there and are currently, you know, sort of your radiation levels are 
thousands of times higher than the suggested rates. Uh, she tells one sort of incredibly uh, moving story where she was visiting um, and you know getting information from these people in Russia who had you know their ancestors had worked at the uh, their mothers and fathers had worked at the plant they grew up at the plant um, and now because they are so heavily radiated, Kate Brown did not and could not I guess feel safe eating with them eating their food because it was so heavily radiated uh which is sort of uh it's a very moving moment in the book and she has to deal with sort of being what she calls a disaster tourist to these areas um you know she's taking these people's information taking their stories uh that they aren't always willing to give but she can't sort of share a meal with them sort of you know basic human interaction is she does not feel safe doing that for her own life uh and sort of wrestling with the ethical implications of that uh, i mean she does you know make money off this book uh he's guggenheim fellowship you know it's part of her career um what can she do uh for them as well which makes up a lot of this book i think which is very important um sort of that she does um promote the sort of safe understanding and then understanding the history of and the cultures of these people who have been so affected uh by this plutonium development, bringing them out into the light um, for practically the first time uh, in history. The people have not, you know, most people do not know these histories. Like, she doesn't talk about Chernobyl at all, really. Uh, factors somewhat into it, but it's not the main part, which is sort of the main, you know, thing we know about. Um, sort of the main popular understanding of nuclear power is maybe Three Mile Island and Chernobyl are the two things you hear about. Um, she goes much more into depth into the ones that, you know, perhaps didn't fail on those spectacular levels, but still caused sort of catastrophic damage. Um, and this, of course, is not all to um, say that nuclear power is bad, I think. Um, and she doesn't perhaps come out and quite say this in the book, but I think sort of a close reading gives these uh, this impression, at least, that, you know, nuclear power, it is sort of, um, it is perhaps the one way that... Um, so the energy crisis now can be solved and sort of the future can be created. Um, as she mentioned in this book, like we do know the implications of all this and it's coming more important to the light, but also we do know a lot of safety precautions that can be taken to stop these things. It's just that they weren't because they're sort of both expensive and time consuming, but that technology does exist. Um, and I guess on sort of in the end note there, sort of the end of the book is perhaps a potential way forward is for just sort of these governments realizing and the people around realizing that there, you know, the, there is a potential huge upside for nuclear energy and power to provide a perhaps cleaner, uh, at least source of uh, energy for the fewer, for the future that is, you know, uh, very much uh, renewable, but the costs um, and precautions have to be taken into effect um and sort of you know if you're looking at the you know quote-unquote end of the world apocalypse scenarios that have been thrown about recently um the costs wouldn't particularly matter no matter how high they were if it would end the world i guess um so that's just sort of the one takeaway from this um is that looking at you know the long history of sort of scientific development and looking how uh, this book very much deals with how sort of scientific developments can be both hidden and then also displayed uh, and shown to the public in ways that are very misleading by companies. Um, and as this still happens today, um, sort of so, you know, promoting scientific literacy uh, and also promoting just sort of the understandings of people on the ground. There's uh, one of the main characters uh, near the end of the book is a, 
you know, current day um, historian of sort of the Washington area where this plutonium development was happening in the state of Washington in the United States. Um, and just, she go, you know, the one line is that sort of, when I was interviewing him, I didn't really believe anything he was saying. Like, this is so, so outlandish, how could this actually be true? But then when she actually, you know, did the research herself, she found out that he was, you know, 99% right. That, you know, the stories um, that he was telling of, you know, sort of like all these government people watching them all the time, you know, running around in vans and then all sort of like the dangerous uh, diseased creatures around were actually, you know, very much true um, and not, you know, false at all or sort of exaggerated for comedic effect that these were happening and existed in the United States. Uh, so I think that sort of, you know, trust of local knowledge uh, and understanding that there are things uh, the scientific community uh, may have had to hide um, or, you know, were sort of subsumed, uh, alighted over by other forces uh, do exist in the world. And that's, you know, sort of taking, even if, you know, if it there it's given to you by some sort of, uh, you know, quote unquote, um, academic or quote unquote expert that, you know, all knowledge production is sort of uh, has ulterior motives uh, and finding out what those motives are uh, and looking into them and, you know, knowing that their knowledge exists, useful knowledge uh, exists outside of the academy, outside of sort of scientific institutions, especially the government, um, and taking that into consideration when thinking about um, sort of developments uh, and what they have to say for scientific and technological developments in the United States. Um, just sort of, uh, and then just sort of, you know, another one more aspect, I guess, of this whole plutonium development is sort of the class ideal of um, of the government that was developed during this time. Uh, one of the big parts of these books is showing sort of how do the workers, uh, who were at least some of the workers, you know, the, enge the engineers, the higher-ups, generally, you know, the white uh, males in the United States uh, case, and then sort of, you know, non-ethnic Russians, or ethnic Russians, um, uh, males in the Russian case, um, and how the government treated them while they were working in these facilities. Um, even in, during Russia at this time, you know, during Stalin and then post-Stalin, very, very poor country, um, because they felt that sort of the work that these people were doing was so important and needed to be supported, um, it sort of created these mini utopias in the U.S. Uh, and in Russia, sort of these classless societies um, where everyone was paid, you know, upper middle class uh, wages, um, whether, you know, you were sort of generally would have been considered lower class and even working outside of these areas, uh, but, you know, provided with the best benefits, uh, cars, teaching, incredible schools, all these sorts of things sort of um, to keep your mouth shut basically and to sort of not complain about the lack of safety standards on it. And it, you know, it worked in a lot of cases. Um, these uh, many stories of people, you know, being sort of suspicious of her, wanting her to not to tell the story in a specific way because it made them look bad or they're still being very proud of the work they did for their country, even while they're suffering from sort of, you know, advanced melanoma and other different stages of cancers because they had been provided with such a good lifestyle, uh, which sort of makes the argument, I guess, that, you know, it is possible for um, these governments to provide this um, sort of high level of care for all their citizens. Um, it just oftentimes has come with um, sort of strings attached, I guess, and looking at where those strings are and how those strings are being pulled and then also who's getting left out. Uh, specifically in the American case, um, 
sort of the non-white workers were all lived in the city, lived in sort of these slums outside, did not receive any of the same care or pay or that anyone else did, even though they were being doing fundamentally important work um, for this development. And the same in Russia, sort of this, the whole city was built on the backs of prison labor, uh, sort of horrible, horrible working conditions that this all came from um, that eventually was, you know, put like, you know, put away. They were put out to in sort of the typical Russian, you know, way they were disappeared, essentially. Uh, and then also sort of the workers themselves, you know, in the American case, uh, basically they couldn't vote. It was, you know, sort of a Pullman town times 300, uh, you know, squared. Um, also, the company made all the decisions. Um, if you, you know, talked up at work or started to try to union, you would lose your company housing, which was very free. So there's sort of a lot of restrictions on all this. Uh, but does show the possibility for perhaps a way future, um, a way forward uh, in the United States for governmental agencies to maybe perhaps sort of, uh, you know, give their citizens a high quality of life and that sort of it can be done, just has to be done in the right way. Uh, so, yeah, very, I guess, sort of the history of um, you plutonium development and the nuclear bomb development and the A-bomb development long been sort of, you know, rele relegated to sort of military history aspects of it or scientific history, you know, looking at sort of the Manhattan Project and how, you know, sort of Bikini Atoll, those things, the first, one of the first atomic tests took place in a, underneath the tennis courts at the University of Chicago, those sort of tidbits. Um, but just seeing that there is sort of a deeper, much more, um, it's not much, much more is it sort of the wrong word, but deeper, um, affecting more areas of American history than we can really imagine uh, and just providing a lot of angles of analysis uh, for our understanding of history and changing sort of our ideas of how we understand nuclear development. It didn't just stop after the atom bomb was dropped uh, in World War II, killing hundreds of thousands. Uh, it continued, especially in the United States, especially in Russia. I mean, this book does not cover Japan, but sort of the effects of that would be a very interesting study. Uh, similarly, similarly, um, and is that it continued and very much sort of affects us today, even now, um, and how we deal with sort of scientific um, abilities, but then also sort of like, you know, wartime capabilities and how it sort of affects industry in general. Uh, still very an important topic, uh, especially with today's climate questions going on. Uh, some future places for study that this book brings up, I guess, is sort of, you know, other comparative studies. How does this look in Britain? How does this look in France? How does this look sort of in India and Pakistan, other, uh, you know, nuclear nations uh, and how they're dealing with sort of similar questions? Do they have to deal with similar questions? Why not? And how their development takes them there. And then also just sort of deeper understandings of what this has to say for um, our own energy crisis, um, how this how nuclear power plays into that. What are sort of the cultural understandings of that? What needs to be changed? How has it changed over time? Uh, these are all sort of very important questions to be looked at uh, about plutonium and the atomic age. So I guess um, we'll wrap it up here almost. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been a great time, I guess. Um, so look for that once again, Plutopia, Nuclear Families, Atomic Cities, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters by Kate Brown. Just a really interesting um, look, uh, providing a deeper understanding of the development post-World War II of uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear power in the United States, specifically around plutonium. Uh, and then just, you know, think about, you know, think about more than just popular cultural representations of um, nuclear power in the United States. I think it's important, actually, that sort of The Simpsons, one of the classic American 
cultural artifacts uh, is based around, you know, the main job they have is a nuclear power plant worker. Uh, so there's much, it's very deeply ingrained into our sort of psyche, um, but our understanding of it, I think, is very limited and much more needs to be done um, to further understanding, um, both personally and then in the popular sense as well. So check this book out uh, and go from there. Thank you very much and have a great day.